You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we're just so grateful for your goodness, for you being our example of what love is, you being our example of what love does. We ask that you would allow us to see more clearly you, the way that you live in us, the way that you would call us to be. We pray that you would take a passage that is is so familiar to so many of us and you would breathe new life into it, that you would stir in us an affection for you, for your glory, for your name and your renown. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I have the um, privilege of preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which uh, even when I talk to my uh, friends who don't follow Jesus, they go, oh, the, is that the love chapter? Is that what that is? I'm like, oh, no, everybody knows this. What am I going to do? Um, but everybody knows this because this is so good. Everyone knows this because this is so good. One of the difficult things about the the passage and and about uh, just talking about love in general is um, English, we're very word poor on the word love. We just have love. That's it. So you use it to um, say that you love pizza. And you say that you love your mom, and you probably don't love pizza the same way that you love your mom, or your spouse, or your kids, or, you know, pad thai. Um, yeah, those things are not, they're not the same. Uh, I, I found it striking one time, and I, this isn't in my notes, I, I don't know why I'm even talking about this, but um, I was reading this book, and um, it was one of those nerdy books where it talks about weird dead languages and, or old languages and stuff, and um, said that there were 98 different words for love in ancient Sanskrit. And uh, there, was a, there was a specific word that was the love that one has for his camel. It's just there. They like that's that's not word poor <laughs> for love, you know? So you can be very pointed about what you mean. So sometimes when we come to a passage like this, it can be very confusing what exactly we're talking about because the word love is so vague. So, we're in 1 Corinthians. And we've talked about several different things throughout 1 Corinthians. So that, that maybe if we um, kind of re-summarize and get ourselves refocused around what's going on in, in this passage. So here's, here's kind of the way that my mind works and what's helpful for me. Um, everything falls into different categories of size of story. So it's like 
you have like this really little story, so which is we're in chapters 12 through 14 right now, which is about spiritual gifts. So that's kind of this little story. But that's in kind of a bit bigger story, which is 11 through 14, which is about the church and the church gathering together and what that looks like and kind of the chaos of what that looked like in Corinth at the time. And then that's in the scope of the letter itself is one of the topics that Paul, the writer, is actually writing to the church uh, because they're actually having some issues. And uh, this is, I I use the word issues uh, intentionally because words really matter. They really matter, and they matter in the text too. They were having some issues. It It was a rough time for them. They, uh, they really didn't understand each other well. Is a way that we could think about it if we were reading the text and not really thinking deeply about what was going on. The brutal reality of what was happening was, was the church was broken and falling apart because sin was eating it alive from the inside. It sounds pretty different, Right? It's a a different thing. So words matter. They're very important. So we're going to try and unpack what love is, what love does, and what love is all about today. So um, a a way to think about this letter and what's what's happening if if we see the letter rightly being written to a broken and a hurting place is that the letter is intended to heal. The letter is intended to be the healing agent uh, that's provided to the church so that they can grow and they can become more like Christ, more like what the church is intended to actually be. So uh, a way to think about this, uh, first three verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All you do is for nothing except when done in love. Pick a thing. Paul does. We're going, to talk, we're going to talk about several different things that he points out that are just worthless. They're nothing. And they're pretty intense things to say aren't worth anything without love. Let's look. Verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So, all action is worthless, except for when done in love. Look at it again, maybe in a different way. Hear, hear what he's saying. Maybe we, we can visualize it. We've got three columns here that he's talking about, right? Our first column that he's talking about, he's talking about spiritual gifts because that's where we're at in the conversation. In this letter, we're on this section about the church, which is in a section about spiritual gifts. We talked about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. We're going to talk about it in chapter 14. That's what we're talking about in 13 as well. And he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, it's just noise. It's just noise. You can have the gift of prophecy, 
and it's just noise. I can stand up here and tell you about stuff in the scriptures. I might as well be beating a drum. It doesn't do anything to lift up, to edify, to encourage the church. Look at what he says next. You could understand all mysteries and knowledge. So we've got spiritual gifts. We've got wisdom or um, mysteries and knowledge, which these are... These are words that he's already used. He's already explained these words earlier. Uh, I'll give you a couple of passages that you can look up and kind of read the context around them and whatnot. Uh, But chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is talking about the mystery of the gospel, the knowledge of, of Jesus, who he is, and then Paul's very own teachings. So you have spiritual gifts, you have Paul's teachings, understanding those things, really getting the gospel, kind of grasping it all up here. But without love, nothing. Nothing. Look at the next one. This one blows my mind every single time. Where have you heard this before? If I had all faith so as I could remove mountains. Who said that? It's Jesus. Jesus' teachings without love, just throw them away. They're worth nothing. Nothing. You could even give up everything that you have. Kind of reminiscent of the early church, right? The church comes together in its, its first kind of iteration in Jerusalem, and they give up. Those that have much, they give it away. Those that have little receive so that the church can take care of itself because Jesus said it's going to be by the love that you have for each other that people are actually going to even know that you're my disciples. That's how they're going to figure it out. So you have spiritual gifts, nothing without love. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to do amazing things, just noise. Paul's teaching, grasping it, understanding it. Jesus' teaching, grasping the gospel, really getting it, right? You could write your own theology book. You could be obedient even to the point of giving up everything that you have, even giving over your body to be burned. However you see that, whether you think that's maybe persecution that's begun already in the church at such an early stage, or if he's reminiscent of a story from the Old Testament where some men were thrown into a fiery furnace, the point is is that you're willing to sacrifice even to death for the stuff that you know. He says, without love, I'm nothing, and I gain nothing. So whatever you do, (laughs) pick a thing. If it's not done in love, it's worthless. So the first thing that pops into my head is, okay, what is love? Uh Uh-oh, it's going to happen. Every time I've practiced this, seriously, I'm sorry, this is in my notes. Every time I practice this, that song is in my head, and I'm going to try and move forward without singing the rest of it. 
I'm really sorry. I'm distracted right now. Um, baby, don't hurt me. Baby, don't hurt me no more. Okay. It's done. It's done. Okay. So, um, what is love? And what does love do? Well, he tells us in verse 4 through 7, and this is the, the really, really familiar part. It says that love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends. That's pretty different from how I feel sometimes, right? Definitely love does something more than just be a stirring feeling inside of me. Love sacrifices. Love sacrifices because our default is not love. Culture would want to tell us that our default is love. Like we're born and we're just this cute, cuddly, little, loving thing. And if you have kids, you're all like, amen. Uh, it's, it's not the case. <laughs> it's not the case. When we are born, we are selfish. We are about nothing but ourselves. This, verse 4 through 7, it's probably on a coffee mug somewhere in your house or your parents' house. But it's not in any self-help book that the world will give you. It's just not there. Because this is completely counterintuitive to life's strategy of you ending up on top. How does Paul come up with this? He's a student of Jesus. Jesus is the one that he follows Jesus is the one that he's learned. I love how he's just able to throw out something like, you could have all faith to remove mountains. And he knows that the church knows it because they're so dedicated to knowing and understanding Jesus' teachings. And they know it so well because they, they've seen it. In the study of the scriptures, they have seen the love that God has for us. And they have seen however patient he is as the whole of scriptures is not just one story about God really liking one guy and and being nice to him but it's a relentless pursuit of humanity bringing them back to himself as they rebel time and time again and he is pursuing and moving forward love never ends it does not quit it does not stop and Paul wants to teach us about what love does because it is not natural for us to do. We can love temporarily. We'll love from time to time. We can be fairly patient with our children for a little bit, with our professor for a while, with a talk show host or a podcaster for a moment in time. But there is always an endpoint for us. But it is not so with love. 
And Paul is calling us to the practice and the hard work of having our affections so stirred for Jesus that we are not only inspired from time to time, but we're fully dedicated to following him. Even when the emotions don't last, we still remember love is patient. Love is patient. I'm going to be patient. Love doesn't envy. I'm going to not envy. I remember Jesus not seeking his own. I won't seek my own. Instead, I'll be like him, and I will serve. I will serve others. At the same time as this is kind of this big story truth about love, this also fits inside of the story of the letter to the Corinthians. Paul actually is picking out different words that he has used throughout the letter as he spoke to them about different things, about division in the church, about the way that they treat their own bodies, their sexual ethics, about the way that they treat each other and and whether or not they could harm each other by using their own freedoms. He's picking up on key words throughout his his own talk, his own letter with them. Here's another way to think about this. Paul is addressing what love is by calling, calling on love as a weapon that wages war against sin and death. And here's the way that we usually think about when we wage war, is that we wield a weapon and we're going like this way, and we're attacking at, right? But look at it again. Love is patient. Love is kind that wielding weapon of love is cutting out pieces of you. It's cutting out selfishness. It's cutting out pride. It's cutting out arrogance that lives inside of us. It's cutting out ego. He gives us love so that we can do battle with that darkness that is in us as we are renewed in his spirit daily as we practice love. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse 9 uh, through, the, through the rest of the passage. For now we know in part. We prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. What's the perfect that comes? It's Jesus coming. It's coming with new creation. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It is very much that when we are born, we are not cuddly, little, loving things. We are about us. And any time that you see a child that is loving and kind and patient, it is the common grace of God that he has given to parents to love and rear them well. 
Just know that. When you see a little kid running around and they're being kind, you should high-five the living mess out of that parent because they taught them that. That is not their default setting. For now, I see in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes, face-to-face, high-definition, 8K. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the way forward. Love is the only way forward. If the church is to move forward as the church, as the embodiment of Jesus on the earth, love is the only way forward. For some of us, we are very, very aware of the cross. We're so aware of the cross and enjoying it, enjoying Jesus and his sacrifice for us. We are, we are easily moved by his compassion And we just sit there in this little bubble of us and Jesus and maybe us and a few friends and we just encourage each other and love each other and it never moves beyond that. And it's not love. It's not. On the other end of it, there are many of us that are about the kingdom. Bring the kingdom now. Let's do the kingdom work Now, it is time to move this kingdom forward. Jesus has put us here so that we may affect the world, love the world, inspire the world, heal the world. And this by itself will begin to harm us because the thing that we're missing will be this. We'll begin to be blind to the fact that what is happening now is in part. It's just in part. It's when the perfect comes that the kingdom will fully be established. It's when the king is on the throne here on earth with us that it will fully be established. It does not mean do not do this, and it does not mean do not do this. It means to do them together. You cannot have the kingdom without the cross, and you cannot have the cross without the kingdom. They go together. And the only way to move forward with kingdom and cross in hand is in love. It's in love. So as we begin to think about what what does this look like, what does this look like for for us to wage war against sin and death that lives inside of us as we constantly are carving out pieces of our old self to make way more room for the Spirit to dwell mightily inside of us. I think first we must pray. I think we must be a people of prayer because that's not a work that you can do on your own. I mean, as soon as you begin to think that, you're reminded of verse 1, 2, and 3 that you can do mighty, mighty things 
but without love, they're worthless. Next, I think we need to do the good work of repentance, searching our hearts. What is it that's in there that's resistant to this kind of love? Because let's be honest, I, some of you know this, some of you maybe not. Um, I just got on Facebook in January, um, and one of the biggest things that I've learned is, is that love doesn't necessarily exist there. It just doesn't. <laughs> There's a whole lot of other things, but love's just not one of them. And that's what's interesting about little spaces like that where you kind of, you almost feel like you have anonymity, like nobody really knows who you are, even though they can like click on your profile and read all about you and all that kind of stuff. But but you feel the freedom to just say whatever it is that you want to say, even things that you might not say directly to somebody's face. So we know that we have this stuff inside of us. And Paul and Jesus and, and the, the Spirit himself wants to guide us through what does that look like in the different areas of our life like that. For some of us, it's things like our, our, our political worldview, the way that we see life itself. It's the, it's the hill that we're willing to die on, that we're willing to sacrifice anyone else for. But the way of love would speak differently. It doesn't mean that we can't hold strong convictions about what we think is the way forward for humanity. But if it's going to be at the cost of someone else, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not seek its own. Allow Jesus to teach us. Jesus, in the garden before his crucifixion, he made it very clear that death on a cross was not his preference. It wasn't the good idea that he was like, let's do this, let's go. He said, Father, if, if this could pass from me, if this cup could pass, I mean, I'd be cool with it. But not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus wants us to do the same. We have a preference. We have the way that we want to live. But it should be subservient to the way that Jesus would call us to live. And it is constantly counterintuitive, so we both have to be proactive at it. But the easiest way to be proactive at it is to have our affections stirred for Jesus to be consistently reminded of his love so that we know what exactly it looks like. It's not just another list of information for our head to check off so that we're doing the Christian life right. It's really finding Jesus, loving him, and then pursuing what he calls us to out of love and affection for him. So we come to the table and maybe we're bringing our time that maybe we're selfish with. 
maybe we're bringing um, our sexuality or our sex life or our, our, our hunger for a partner. Maybe we're just bringing ourself. We're so selfish that we're saying, I just need to lay down me and my desires at the foot of your cross, Jesus. Just save me from myself. So as we pray a prayer for the uh, for the communion, we take the we take the bread and we dip it in the juice. I can ask the music team to go ahead and come on up. And um, as you begin to reflect and think on what we're doing, so that we're not just going through the motions again on another Sunday. When we come and we get in lines here, and we come up and we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, we're remembering Jesus' body, which was broken for us, and his blood that was spilled out for us to show us love, true love, love that's very different from the way that we treat each other, a love that is more compassionate than we could ever be. Think about it. God has been pursuing us with a relentless love that does not end. It does not end like, um, I'm just going to keep doing it. But it's a pushing forward in the love. It's not a passive just continuing to walk in love, walk in love. Here's God just walking in love again. But he is pressing in, wanting relationship with you. He loves you so much. Sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that. And the reason is because we've kind of put ourselves like here. Like God's here and like I know that I'm not there, but I'm kind of like here. And I, and I do a lot of good things and I'm, and I'm kind of in a good spot in my life. And so it doesn't seem that dramatic for God to sacrifice for me because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. But the brutal reality is we are not good. This, I cannot make my hand go down far enough. And we will never see him clearly, more beautifully than we grasp, than when we grasp the hurt and the pain that we cause the world around us, it is us. We are sinful, broken people. Our default setting is the oppression of others. We are about us. And it is not until we grasp the fact that we will never be good We have to receive his goodness for us. So as you come into the aisles and you come and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, with all of your might, remember his love. Remember his love. If you've never been at a place where you could take communion, you have not trusted Jesus. 
He is worth trusting. He is worth trusting. Maybe you think that you can figure it out on your own, that you are the one who holds the key. It's somewhere inside of you. You've just got to figure it out. I've tried. Every person that I know has tried. No one has figured it out. I was talking to some people earlier this week, and we were talking about the difference between people in the church and people that are not in the church. And the only difference is is that the broken people that are not in the church haven't admitted the level of brokenness that they are. Whereas the people in the church are the exact same amount of brokenness, the exact same amount of pain, the exact same amount of hurt. We are identical. The only difference is is that we've accepted a love from God that is bigger than anything that we could ever fathom or grasp. And we're just merely saying yes to it. So if you've never done that, I would encourage you, maybe, maybe this communion table is your first communion table where you're just coming and you're taking the bread and you're dipping it in the cup and you're just saying, Lord, I trust you. I have no idea what exactly that means. But I trust you. And I want to know you more. I want to walk with you. So come. The table is open. Come and bring your hurt, bring your pain. Leave it here. And walk in joy and freedom and peace. Come, the table is open.